You're listening to the Van Moody Podcast. Our passion is transforming the world by transforming lives. In today's episode, we'll explore more reasons why God allows us to go through pain and what our responsibility is in the midst of these situations. Let's get started. I'm excited for us to go further into this, what I believe is a necessary and much needed teaching series, What Is God Doing? And as we pick it up for this week, as we go further into this study of the book of Job, we're going to talk this morning with this thought in mind, don't waste your pain. Don't waste your pain. I want to pause for a moment and pray. Father, I thank you for the power of your word, and I thank you now that We've come to it, and we need it desperately, Lord. We want to hear from you. So, Father, I pray that you would speak loudly and clearly. Penetrate, Lord, the surface stuff that we try to hide behind. God, and speak to the very core of our being. We come to your word with excitement and expectation. Have your way now. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. And the people of God said, amen. Well, family, each week our teaching notes are out on our TWC app. And so I want to encourage you to uh, grab that or grab your Bible. uh, And we're going to pick it up at around um, Job chapter 33 in just a moment. But as we make our way into this next installment of this uh, teaching series this week, we have been walking through the book of Job, for several weeks now. And I know that by now we can kind of look back over the series and can begin to extract some pretty critical lessons from this book in particular. For an example, I believe that one of the most important lessons that this book is poised to teach us is that pain and difficulty is unavoidable, meaning that there is no such thing as a pain-free life. As a matter of fact, as long as you and I are on this planet, we're going to encounter pain. We will have emotional pain and physical pain or maybe even relational pain, pain perhaps in many different ways or maybe in different areas of our lives. And that's just an undeniable reality. We are not at or in heaven yet. Until we get to heaven, we are stuck here on earth. While heaven is pain-free, that's not the case for earth. So while we're here on earth, there will be pain and there will be difficulty. But one of, I think, the most important things that God has been saying through the book of Job is that what's most important is how you respond to the pain and the difficulty. Pain and difficulty is unavoidable. But what's most important is how you respond. The truth is how you respond to hardship and pain and difficulty will either make you bitter or it will make you better. Remember that this is the argument of Satan that we dealt with in week one of this series, that the argument or the insinuation of Satan to God is that the only reason why Job is faithful and the only reason why Job is a great man is because he hasn't gone through difficulty yet. And Satan suggests that God, if you, if you allow Job to go through hardship and, and difficulty, that he will end up being bitter. 
that he will, he will leave you. He won't be this upstanding man that you claim that he is. And remember the whole point of what God does with Job. Um, the reason that God even allows Satan to have access to Job's life is it wasn't punishment. It wasn't punitive. It really was a promotion because God thinks so much of Job that he says, no, here, try my servant Job because God knows that instead of Job becoming bitter through the pain, he's going to end up being better. You know, I grew up a very angry and broken kid because there were a number of unfortunate things that happened to me as a child as I was growing up. But now as an adult, as I look back over my life, I realize that my response was simply to run to God with those things. And because of that, in many ways, those experiences made me better instead of bitter. Now, honestly, there were a number of other people that I grew up with that also went through some very painful and traumatic experiences. But I look at them now and look at their life, and some of them, their life has really been more so defined by them being bitter. And I've often ask, well, what was the difference, God? Why did, why did I end up um, using those experiences to become better? And, and they allowed those experiences to define them so much that they're bitter. And I recognize now that it has nothing to do with the anointing or it has nothing to do with my calling or my profession, but it has everything to do with the fact that I allowed those experiences to make me run to God. And so God used the pain to help make me better. Whereas other individuals got stuck in that pain and ended up becoming bitter. I say that because generally when negative or tragic or unfortunate things happen to us, we respond in one of two ways. We respond with either shame or we respond with repentance. Now, I've got to unpack this for a moment because sometimes we get those two things confused, especially in Christian circles, but they are vastly different. See, shame is self-focused. Shame says, I'm bad, therefore the bad things that have happened to me were deserved. Shame is self-focused, and shame leads us to hide. It leads us to living lives of isolation, and even to a place of self-hatred. Shame, in essence, pulls us away from God. Repentance is totally different. Repentance is uh, being cognizant of our own depravity, our, our own failures, our own issues, but recognizing in the midst of that with all of our heart that God's grace is greater See, repentance is God-focused, not self-focused. And instead of leading to loneliness, repentance ultimately leads to liberty and to joy. As a matter of fact, the word in the New Testament um, that the New Testament often uses for repentance literally means after thinking about it, you turn to God. That's what that word uh, is translated as meaning. It's often um, uh, used in the New Testament to define or used as the word for repentance. It's metanoia in the Greek, and it literally means after thinking about it, you turn to God. 
And I think the best picture of this in the Bible is the young man that we often call the prodigal son in Luke 15, because that's in fact what he does. You know that he takes his father's stuff, he squandered it all, Luke 15 says, in, in wild or riotous living. He, he's got nothing. He ends up having to, to serve in a pig pen. And it says that he begins to think, how many of my father's hired men have food enough to spare? And here I am in a pig pen. I got nothing. And I'm at my lowest point. And it says, literally, that he thought to himself, I need to go back home. After thinking about it, what does he do? He turns to his father. And he brings his situation, his failures, his mistakes, he brings it to his father. And we know ultimately the end of the story is there's liberty, there's joy, because the father embraces him, gives him the robe of many colors, kills the fatted calf. And that's the picture of real repentance. We think that repentance is just saying, I'm sorry. But no, it's really when, when you understand, yes, I may be fallen. Yes, I may be squandered at all. Yes, I've gone through some painful things, but I know that God's grace is greater. So I'm going to turn to my father and I'm going to go to him with my stuff. See, here's the thing about pain that if you're not careful will lead to shame. If you don't run to the Lord with it, if you don't run to the Lord, if you don't, like that prodigal son, run to your heavenly father with that stuff, if you don't allow God to deal with what you've been through, uh, that wound in your life, that pain in your life, if you don't allow God to deal with it, the poison won't come out. And if the poison doesn't come out, it will end up staying in your life and making you sicker and sicker and subsequently damaging your heart so much in the place of that original wound that many people end up getting stuck right there. That's why shame traps us. Shame is not repentance. Now, sometimes in church circles, we, we hear people confessing, Lord, I'm sorry, and I'm sorry, and I'm sorry. Oh, Lord, I messed it up, and Lord, forgive me. And we think that that is repentance, but that's not really repentance because often when people say, I'm sorry, and Lord, I messed it up, it's still self-focused. No, what God wants us to do is to run to him. No matter how we feel, no matter how bad the pain is, no matter how far we've fallen, and he wants us to run to him and know and receive that his grace is sufficient for us. And we're going to... Look at this chapter in the book of Job that in many ways really clarifies the difference between shame that is self-focused and pulls us away from God and ultimately leads to bitterness and isolation. And we're going to see the difference between that shame and repentance that ultimately leads us to God and leads us to joy and to liberty. And so we're going to look at, in a moment, Job chapter 33. And in Job chapter 33, before we go there, let me set the scene for you. In Job 33, we are introduced 
to a new character in the Job story. Now, so far, as we've been walking through this series and walking through the book of Job, there have been five human characters. We know that God has played a role in it. Satan's had a very, very small role to play, and we talked about that in week one. But as it relates to human characters, so far, there have been five human characters in this story. There has been Job, there has been Mrs. Job, and then there have been the three stooges. And by the three stooges, I'm talking about Job's friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Those have been the five human characters that we've seen up until this point. Now, we have a new human character that enters into the story. And his name is Elihu. Um, some people translate it Elihu. Now, most theologians believe that, that Elihu has been there the entire time. Most, most theologians believe that while Job has been kind of sitting outside, scraping his sores, and while this conversation, this back and forth has happened between Job and his friends, that, that Elihu has been there the entire time, but he doesn't say anything. And so when you get to around chapter 32, this is the first time that Elihu kind of opens his mouth and begins to say something. And so he starts talking in chapter 32, but I want to focus on chapter 33, and I want us to just read it together. And I want to read a lot of these verses because I want you to just get the sense of, of Elihu and his role in Job's life at this juncture. And he says, but now, Job, pay attention to my speech and listen to all of my words. I'm going to open my mouth. My tongue will form words on my palate. My words come from my upright heart and my lips speak with sincerity what they know. The spirit of God has made me and the breath of the almighty gives me life. Refute me if you can. Prepare your case against me. Take your stand. I am just like you before God. I was also pinched off from a piece of clay. Fear of me should not terrify you. The pressure I exert against you will be light. Surely you have spoken in my hearing, and I've heard these very words. I am pure without transgressions. I am clean and have no guilt. But he finds reason to oppose me. He regards me as his enemy. He puts my feet in the stocks. He stands watch over my path. Elihu is now quoting things that Job has said. But notice he goes on and says, but I tell you that you are wrong in this matter, since God is greater than man. Why do you take him to court for not answering anything a person asks? For God speaks time and again, but a person may not notice it. In a dream, a vision in the night, when deep sleep falls on people as they slumber on their beds, he uncovers their ears at that time, we're going to come back to that verse. He uncovers their ears at that time and terrifies them with warnings in order to turn a person from his actions and suppress his pride. God spares his soul from the pit, his life from crossing the river of death. A person may be disciplined on his bed with pain and constant distress in his bones so that he detests Bread and his soul despises his favorite food. His flesh wastes away to nothing and he uh, and his unseen bones stick out. He draws near to the pit and his life to the executioners. If there is an angel on his side, one mediator out of a thousand to tell a person what is right for him and to be gracious to him and say, spare him from going down to the pit. I have found a ransom. Then his flesh will be healthier than in his youth and 
He will return to the days of his youthful vigor and he will pray to God and God will delight in him. That man will see his face with a shout of joy and God will restore his righteousness to him. He will look at men and say, I have sinned and perverted what was right, yet I did not get what I deserved. He redeemed my soul from going down to the pit and I will continue to see the light. God certainly does all these things two or three times to a man in order to turn him back from the pit so he may shine with the light of life. Pay attention, Job, and listen to me. Be quiet, and I will speak. But if you have something to say, answer me. Speak, for I would like to justify you. If not, then listen to me. Be quiet, and I will teach you wisdom. Now, there is a lot of theological debate about the place of Elihu in the story of Job. And what a number of people have tried to do throughout history is to try to lump um, Elihu in with Job's three friends. But I want you to understand he should not be viewed that way. In fact, Elihu occupies a very, very special role in the story of Job um, for a reason. Now, there are several things that I could share with you to help you to understand that that Elihu should not be lumped in with Job's friends. One of the things that I think is important to note to help you to understand this point is that later we'll see in Job chapter 42, when God actually speaks, one of the things that God says is that God is angry with Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, but he doesn't say that he's angry with Elihu. Elihu should not be lumped together as a character with the rest of Job's friends. He shouldn't because Elihu in many ways is kind of like an angelic character that comes alongside Job and is used of God to share some very important information with him. This is part of the reason why, incidentally, you should always remain open, even when you're going through difficult seasons, because you never know who God will send in your life to speak wisdom to you. This is why the key verse that I want you to key in on is Job 33 and verse 16, because one of the main things that God uses Elihu to speak to Job is verse 16 of Job 33 when he says, he uncovers their ears at that time and terrifies them with warnings. What is he saying? He's saying, Job, I've heard you. You've been complaining. You've been moaning and grumbling and talking about why God, why am I going through this? What have I done wrong? And all of your friends, your three stooges of friends have tried to suggest that you've sinned or your children have sinned or that other things are the cause. He says, but, but none of that's the point. He says, Job, one of the things I want you to understand is that God will uncover your ears when you go through these kinds of times. Translation, point number one, God gets our attention through pain. Don't waste your pain. And a part of what you need to understand if you're not going to waste your pain is that number one, this is what Elihu is sent by God to help Job to understand is that number one, God will get your attention through pain. That's what Elihu, this, this man, the young man even, with a lot of wisdom, that's what he's saying to Job. He uncovers our ears, Job, when we go through these kinds of things. God gets our attention through pain, meaning that our ears perk up. 
And we're more open to hear from God when we go through seasons of pain, unlike any other times when, when, when things are comfortable and when things are easy. Now, put a finger in Job 33 and then turn and meet me in Psalms, Psalm 119 and verse 75. Because the psalmist picks up on this as well and begins to talk about this. The, the, the psalmist says in Psalm 119 and verse 75, the psalmist says, I know, Lord, that your judgments are just and that you have afflicted me fairly. What, what does he mean? You have afflicted me fairly. In other words, the psalmist is saying, I, I, I'm hurting but, but I know that there's a purpose to this because, God, I know you are using my hurt for your purposes. That's what that phrase, you've afflicted me fairly, means. The psalmist says, yes, I am hurting. Yes, I'm going through pain. Yes, this is not an easy time. But here's what I know, God. I know that you are using my hurt for your purposes. That's real important. And let me be clear right in through here. The Bible is not saying that all pain and that all hurt is divinely caused. The Bible doesn't say that. God did not cause or create diseases like cancer or AIDS. Those things are the result of the fall. God didn't cause uh, global warming that's changing even uh, how we experience different temperatures and different seasons. No, God didn't create that. That, that was a result of the fall. God did not create pedophiles who, who hurt and take advantage of children. So I, I want to be clear here because I don't want you to leave and think, well, my, my goodness, Bishop said that God is the cause of every negative thing. No, no, no. No, I'm not saying that every time something painful or difficult happens that God caused it. And I want to be real clear here because a lot of times when we go through things like COVID-19, and I remember this vividly on the backside of 9-11, there were so-called spiritual people who were saying that God did this. And I want you to understand that that is irresponsible and extremely spiritually negligent because the Bible doesn't say that, that all manner of pain and difficulty and suffering that God caused. But what the Bible does say is that God will use the pain. He may not cause it, but he will use it. And one of the dominant ways that God uses it is that he gets our attention with it. We have a, at our home um, kind of a retaining wall, and um, you see it uh, kind of from our backyard, and... Um, we always have our kids, they take our dog out and they take him to a certain section for him uh, to use the restroom. And it's near that retaining wall. And I often tell Eden and Ethan, stay off the retaining wall. Stay over on the grass. Don't walk on the wall because they could fall down from the wall to the concrete and hurt themselves. And so the other day, uh, I was um, getting ready for bed and getting our kids ready for bed. And Ethan said, Dad, my arm is really, really hurting. And and uh, he said, would you, would you look at it? And he lifted his arm up like this, and just all of this was scratched up. And, and I said, what happened? And he said, well, well, I was walking Teddy, and then I fell. I said, where did you fall? He said, I fell off the retaining wall. Now, I didn't know this. 
This happened earlier in the day. I didn't know anything about it. But the pain was so bad that it caused him to run to his father. I hope you see it. That's how God sometimes will use our pain. He will use our pain to get our attention. And sometimes it's divinely um, used to get us to run to our father. Proverbs chapter 20 and verse, verse 30 says it this way. Sometimes it takes a painful experience to make us change our ways. Here's another one in 2 Corinthians 7 and 9. Uh, it says, I- I'm glad, I'm glad, not because it hurt you, but because the pain turned you to God. God doesn't cause. That's what Elihu was saying to Job. You're so busy asking why, and your friends are so busy trying to say, well, you did this and you did that. The truth is, God doesn't cause um, every painful, difficult, tragic situation in our lives, but he will use it. God uses our pain for a whole, a whole bunch of different reasons. God uses pain to direct us, to help us know which way to go. God uses pain to correct us, uh, to, to show us areas of our life that we, that, that we are just flat out wrong in. God uses even pain to perfect us, to show us that, you know what? I've got to do some more work to conform you into the image and likeness of Jesus. You know, God also uses pain to protect us. Sometimes God will allow a problem in our lives at this juncture to prevent a greater problem down the road. Sometimes God will even allow pain to inspect us, to show us that, you know what? There's something really going on in your heart that I've got to address. And the truth is, sometimes if we didn't have the pain we would not know that anything was wrong. I love how the great theologian C.S. Lewis and great theologian and author C.S. Lewis, he said it this way. He said, God whispers to us in our pleasure, but he shouts to us in our pain. That's so good. God whispers to us in our pleasure, but he shouts to us in our pain. Can I tell you something? God is shouting right now. He's shouting to our country. He's shouting to our community. He is shouting through all of the painful experiences that we have been going through, uh, the, the unjust killings, uh, COVID, and so much more. God is shouting because C.S. Lewis said it best. God whispers to us in our pleasure, but he shouts to us in our pain. And so God uses, he uses our pain. But here's the second and final point, and then I'm going to introduce our guest this morning. In order for God to use our pain, we've established that that's what he does. In order for God to use our pain, here's the, the second thing that Elihu shares with Job. You have to share your pain. If In order for God to use our pain, we have to share our pain, meaning if you're not going to waste your pain, there's one qualification, and that's this. You got to be real about it. You got to be honest. You got to be authentic with your pain. 
This is where we come back to this whole issue of shame versus repentance. Because remember, shame um, causes you to want to drift away from God, to want to hide the pain. It leads to isolation. But, but repentance says, no, 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 no. No, I'm turning to God with it because God, here it is. It's messed up. It's jacked up. It doesn't feel good, but I know that your grace is sufficient. And so here it is. I'm not going to hide it. I'm not going to pretend that it's not there. Here it is, God. Please use it. Please do something redemptive out of it. Please get the glory out of it. This is, yet again, what Elihu is talking about with Job. If you go back to Job 33, around verse 25, he's talking about it, but I just want to pick it up here. He says, then his flesh will be healthier than his youth. This is Job 33, Around verse 25, he says, then his flesh will be healthier than in his youth, and he will return to the days of his youthful vigor. He will pray to God, and God will delight in him. And that man, he's talking about what will happen when you share your pain. He says, and then that man will see his face with a shout of joy, and God will restore his righteousness to him. He will look at men and say, listen, I've sinned. So here's the point. He's open with it. He says he, he will look at men and say, I have sinned and perverted what was right, yet I did not get what I deserved. He redeemed my soul from going down to the pit, and I will continue to see the light. God certainly does all these things two or three times to a man in order to turn him back from the pit so that he may shine with the light of life. Elihu was saying, Job, God uses your pain, but you got to be willing to share it. You, 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 you can't hide it and go down this road of shame. You've got to turn to the Lord and expose it and go the way of repentance. Translation, don't try to airbrush your problems. Don't try to act like you've been on a victory lap your whole life. You got to be real. Got to be real about the hurts. Got to be real about the stuff. Because if you're not going to talk about it and address it and to be honest with it, you, you prevent God or even prolong the, the agony and also get in the way of how God wants to use it. And so... As I prepare to close this morning and introduce our amazing guest, I want to close by giving you five practical things, practical things, because the question inherent in, in this is, okay, Bishop, how do I not waste my pain? I want to give you five practical things that you see Elihu alluding to. You also see these five things repeated um, through the Apostle Paul, who was also, like Job, acquainted with pain. Paul spends more time in his Gospels, uh, and more time in his epistles, rather, not his Gospels, but more time in his letters where he is sharing the Gospel with the churches that he planted across Asia Minor. But Paul spends more time talking about how God has moved in his life through his pain than he does talking about how God moved in his life through joy. But Paul gives us these five things that you also see Elihu talking about with Job. And the first one, A, is that you got to be open with your feelings. I love it. In 2 Corinthians 6 and 11, the apostle Paul says, we have spoken frankly to you. We have opened our hearts wide. Paul is saying, I've shared our feelings. We literally have spilled our guts. We're not holding anything back. 
And that's important because you cannot be emotionally distant and connect with people. God wants to, to use your pain, and a part of how he wants to use it involves you sharing it, but you can't share it with people and be emotionally disconnected at the same time. So you've got to be open with your feelings. But then, B, you've got to be humble with your faults. You know, one of the things that Elihu says in Job 33 that is astounding is he says, listen, Job, you're not perfect. Now, we know that Job didn't do anything to deserve what he went through, but, but Elihu just cuts through all of that, and he's like, you, you know, you're trying to act like you're perfect and you've never done anything wrong. He says, you're not that. You got to be humble with your faults. In Galatians 6 and 5, it says, each of us must bear the faults and burdens of his own, for none of us is perfect. We, we, we all know that, but then we turn around and try to pretend like we are the only ones in the universe that, that are perfect and have never made a mistake. And we want to hide our feelings. We want to also not only hide our feelings, but we want to hide our faults. Job is told by Elihu, Paul even undergirds it and says, you, you got to be humble with your faults. C is be frank about your failures. Be frank about your failures. In 1 Timothy 1 and 15, I love it. Uh, it says, and Paul's talking to, to, to Timothy here. He says, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Paul, Paul was so frank about his failures. Paul is not pulling any punches. He said, man, I am the worst of sinners. In fact, in another part of the Bible, he even talks about how he was in on the murder of Stephen. You know, he, 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 he just in essence says, I, I really don't deserve any of God's grace, but he gives it anyway. He's frank. And that same level of frankness, because the truth is we've all made mistakes. We've all dropped the ball and we've got to be frank about it. D is be honest about your frustrations. You know, going through this time right now with everything that's happening in our world, there's a lot that is frustrating. And then you know what we often do when we see each other, maybe on Zoom or you text people, how are you doing? And we respond with those uh, pet answers. I'm great or praise the Lord. Thank you. So good to see you. And the truth is we are so far from, from that. Be honest about your frustrations. You know, I'm really frustrated right now. I'm tired right now. You can be honest and say that. And then lastly, be candid about your fears. If God is going to use this painful time, be even candid about your fears. Paul, once again, was honest about this. In 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 20, he says, I do admit that I have fears, that when I come to you, you'll disappoint me, or maybe I'll disappoint you, and in frustration with, with each other, everything will fall to pieces. He's honest about his fears. You know, my wife and I, we, we, we are wrestling with this very thing right now as it relates to our children going back to school. I even had a conversation with the headmaster at our kid's school, and I just said, man, I, I don't know. I, I, I need to know more about what the safety protocols are going to be because, because I do have a lot of fear and a lot of concern um, about our kids, particularly as kids of color going back, particularly if the environment is not going to take every precaution necessary. God uses our pain if we're willing to share it and be honest about it.
So before I introduce our guest, I want to close with this story about a true story about an amazing couple. I actually talked about them in uh, a previous book that I wrote. Um, and uh, it's about a, a man named Brandon and a girl named Gina. They were both in their 20s and they met on a social media site and they quickly hit it off. And so they started kind of seeing each other. And on their fifth date, they decided to go on an outdoor adventure. And this happened in California. So they were right outside of Palm Springs. And they said, okay, they're going to take a scenic ride up a tram to the top of um, Mount San Jacinto in Southern California, which is like the second highest peak there. And they did that. They took the ride up and it was beautiful and scenic. Uh, and then they decided that they were going to hike around the top of the mountain. And at first everything went well, but then um, within a couple of hours, they left the trail and they headed down into a canyon and they were trying to find a waterfall that they thought they heard in the distance, but they never found the waterfall. And after a few hours of searching for this waterfall, um, they figured that they couldn't find it. And then when they turned to try to get back to the trail, they discovered that, that they were so far down in the canyon that they couldn't get back up uh, the steep trail. And then realization hit them that they're probably going to have to spend the night outside. Now, this was a shock because all they had with them, they had a camera, they had lip balm, they had a tiny tube of sunscreen, and they had two pieces of gum. They had no water, no food, and no extra clothing. Now, the temperature that night dropped in the 40-degree range. And so that night, they had huddled together between some rocks, trying to stay warm, and obviously, they didn't sleep much. And then the next day, they continued hiking down the mountain, hoping that search parties would be out looking for them soon. But then the next day, they didn't see anybody, and they started really wondering if they were going to make it out alive. Brandon and Gina, they figured, all right, if we're going to survive this, we got to work together, even though they barely knew each other. This was still early on in their dating. They had only gone out on a couple of other dates prior to this happening. And so they said, all right, we got to learn how to work together. So they gathered rocks and they made a big X on the ground. And they were hoping that if people were searching for them up in the air, they would see the X uh, and then rescue them. And that didn't happen. And then they, they created this mantra that they kept repeating together. We're not going to die on this mountain. We're not going to die on this mountain. We're not going to die on this mountain. Well, on their fourth day, yes, their fourth day in the wilderness, Brandon and Gina were still kind of wandering around and they came upon an old abandoned campsite. And at this old abandoned campsite, they found some weathered gear. And uh, in that gear was a backpack. And in the backpack was some maps, um, some medicine, some socks, and a few other supplies inside. And, and they looked around and didn't have any idea who this stuff belonged to, where the camper was, why he had abandoned his campsite. But honestly, after four days in the wilderness, they were grateful that they found these kind of unexpected provisions. And so they decided to go through the bag one more time to see what else was in there. And they found something that they missed the first time they looked in the bag. They found a package of fireproof matches. Now, what they started thinking was, okay, if Brandon can gather some, some, some brush and logs, 
um, we can start a bonfire. That would help us stay warm. And then hopefully the smoke would billow up and uh, it would send a message to potential rescuers. And so after four days of, of no food, uh, very little uh, water um, and, and no rest, they, they somehow managed to strength. Brandon grabbed uh, some wood and they used the matches and they started a fire and the fire went up. And sure enough, um, the rescuers, a rescue team spotted the smoke and then found where Brandon and Gina were. And they realized that it was the unexpected matches in the backpack that they found that ultimately led to saving their life because the rescuers saw the smoke, found them, and rescued them. Now, sometime later, after Brandon and Gina got home safely, they found out that the owner of the backpack with the matches was a man who had died out in the wilderness. His body was found later by a group of searchers, and it wasn't really far from where they had found the abandoned campsite. And somehow they managed to find an abandoned campsite, but they didn't see the body. And so it was the campsite that was abandoned by a man that had died, that had the matches in it, that ultimately saved their life. And when they found that out, they realized, watch this, that if the man hadn't died and left his belongings, they wouldn't have found the matches and ultimately they themselves wouldn't have survived. The painful experience of this man dying was also the same experience that God used to save them. That's the point of this story. That no matter how dark and difficult and tragic it is, God uses our pain for his purposes. We hope you enjoyed this message from Pastor Van Moody. For more information about Van Moody Ministries, please visit vanmoody.org. Thank you for joining us and have a blessed week.